Welcome to Simon and Whiten, the podcast at the crossroads of media, business, and politics. I'm Christian Whiten, joined as always by co-host Mark Simon. Mark, please say hello. Hi, everybody. All right, Mark, you know, I think we were all shocked on Friday by news that Shinzo Abe, the former prime minister of Japan, the longest serving prime minister of Japan, was assassinated in Nara, right next to Kyoto, by someone using an improvised weapon. You know, it's still early days as Japan and the rest of the world absorbs the shock. Um, But I understand, Mark, that there are some very ugly things coming from China about this. You know, uh, I don't know when JFK was assassinated, if the Soviets were, were, were saying, you know, happy things about that. I think probably not. Um, and, you know, maybe for Japan, which has very little political violence, this is something of that magnitude. Maybe not. I don't know. But uh, what are you hearing from the mainland and what do you think is going to come of it? It's, it's, it's incredibly nasty. I mean, first of all, I think, I think we have to understand throughout Asia, uh, there is a residual anti-Japanese element there. I mean, it happens in every place. When I lived in the Philippines, there were people who, not, who wouldn't do business with the Japanese or tried not to. Mm-hmm. Um, Southeast Asia, uh, Philippines, I mean, Southeast Asia around the corn, Myanmar and places like that. Uh, when I was in Myanmar a number of times, you heard anti-Japanese comments, you know, from people a little bit older always, but not too harsh. Um, everybody kind of expects this from South Korea. I mean, that was, you know, there's the nationalist over there and that's it. But frankly, South Korea has not been nearly as nasty as another place, and that's China. Um, everything from people offering restaurant discounts because, you know, Abby got killed. I'm knocking 12 percent off to discos showing it at night. And I, I, I the thing is, is like, all right, that's bad taste. <coughs> the Chinese Internet can be as horrible as the U.S. Internet. But the thing that really shocked me <coughs> was how this is being internalized in Japan. And I've spoken with two people in the last couple of days one guy just to offer condolences because he knew Abe. And they're generally kind of pissed in Japan. They're a little upset with this. I mean, the people are like, hey, you know what? This is out of bounds. Um, and I think that, quite frankly, um, it will just further cement Abe's position of not being a real fan of the, the Chinese Communist Party. It's some nasty, nasty stuff. And, you know, we all would like to say that, like, oh, well, you know, the geopolitical strategy here and the geopolitical ramifications, long-term power politics, all that good stuff. Look, the guy was very popular, um, uh, longest-serving prime minister ever, uh, left because of health reasons, did not have to leave, was under no real pressure to leave, and um, was assassinated in a a brutal attack. And (laughs) then the Chinese Internet blows up. And I think people in Japan are going, okay, this is what you guys are. We now see what your true colors are. We see what you are as a nation and as a people, not just the Communist Party, who, by the way, came out late, um, but basically did the standard condolences and all that crap, you know what I'm saying, that came from Mm -hmm. them. But (laughs) some very nasty behavior. And I think it has solidified in Japan, uh, or helped solidify, I should say, an attitude that the Chinese basically are just on the other side of them. Right. You know, you've done, you spent a lot of time in the Philippines. You lived a very long time in China, in Hong Kong. Certainly you've done a lot of business with Japanese. I was just curious about, and it's, it's early days, but looking down the road, uh, do you think the CCP, the Chinese government will actually try and tamp down some of this displays? <laughs> I know they're always a little concerned that something that starts 
as as sure. as not confronting the CCP. I mean, after all, Tiananmen, I believe, started over a funeral of someone who just wasn't quite as much of a hardliner, and that turned into protests. And the protests against yeah. Japan or sentiment against Japan can actually become just like that sentiment against the CCP. I it can it can very quickly. Mm -hmm. I think if we start to see that happen, they will clamp down on it. But they've shown no inclination whatsoever to clamp down on it. Now we have the if you go back, oh my God, maybe ten more than ten years, we have when they were in their first anti-Japanese fit, and the Chinese clamped that down. You know, they're bashing Toyotas and Hondas and everything. But really, I I, I have not seen anything um, that would indicate the Chinese. And frankly, they didn't like Abe anyway. I mean, Xi Jinping. Uh, considered Abe an adversary. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. um, Putin didn't like him. Um, look, he was a strong leader who was trying to get rid of Title Nine, not not Title Nine, Article Nine. And you know what did that mean? That meant that there'd be more trouble and more resistance for China. He was also a huge supporter of Taiwan, not Taiwan independence, but Taiwan. You have to remember the pictures of him eating Ch Taiwanese pineapple. Uh, the China, the Thai, Japanese have been moving significant military hardware down to their southernmost islands north of Thai, north of Taiwan, and they're not moving them there because they're worried about an invasion from Malaysia. You know, so um, <laughs> right. and, and I think under Abe, I think the one thing that did switch in the U.S. relationship, I people are always asking me, well, what does the U.S. do if China does something against Taiwan? I think the real question now is, what does Japan do? And how does the U.S. get dragged along with that? In other words, yeah. I think the Chinese have two people they have to worry about now, the U.S. and the Japanese. And the Japanese, let's let's call it like it is. They're not a huge military, but they're a decent size. But mm -hmm. they're incredibly technologically advanced and they're very good. I mean, you know, it is that Japanese, you know, the same way they make cars, their military <laughs> is incredibly solid. Right. You know? and, I mean, you hear these stories and, of the U.S. Navy having collisions uh, just from bad seamanship in recent years. And you haven't heard that from from Japanese Navy. No, it's a small Navy that is concentrated there. And they know those waters. They have a small submarine force. But quite frankly, look, if the Japanese started in with the Chinese, then Okinawa was brought into it right away. Yeah, Okinawa exactly. was brought into it. The U.S. is into it. OK, um, and we have we do have a mutual defense treaty with Japan that is hair trigger. OK, yeah. it's not it's not like, well, let's have a debate about that. It is it is intentionally <laughs> a hair trigger thing where I, I quite frankly think that, you know, you would see sink pack fleet and you would see the U.S. Navy out there who has such close relations. It would be incredibly difficult to see um, arguments inside the NSC from the Ivy Leaguers um, against the uh, uh, Annapolis boys and even General Austin and those people. I think it would be hair trigger. So I think in many ways, Abe has, you know, unfortunately, uh, was unfortunately murdered, but now there's a, more, a hard marker down in Japanese politics now. Right, right. And just to close out the issue before we shift to the next, you know, uh, somewhat made of a martyr. And also people remember these things for a long time. I still remember it's sort of been covered up and even denied. Uh, but Palestinians dancing in the streets on 9-11 and handing out candies to kids and things like that. And everyone pretends like it doesn't happen. But, you know, 21 years later, plus I remember it. Um, most, so, you most, know, most, we'll see. Most people, most people do remember these things. It's, it's informative. It's, it's something like what people are like, whoa, I can't believe they're so nasty. It's, it's also an easy one for the Japanese people to be revolted by this because it's revolting behavior. Mm -hmm. And you can be revolted without a price. Um, 
I would say the only other thing I would say is we have started to move into what I call Lee Harvey Oswald territory about mm -hmm. this murderer. Um, yeah. You know, everybody's asked, how did he get this? How did he get that? I mean, you know, basically we're going to have out, we're going to have the Japanese versions of Alex Jones on this from the right for a long, long time. <laughs> Cause you'll never right. be able to satisfy. How did he get so close? Right. Where was the security? Why were they stepped back? Why did he go to NARA? All these questions are already coming out from the conspiracy crowd, which I, 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 Everybody looks for conspiracy. I look for incompetence uh, in terms of his security detail. In terms there seem of, to be a lot. And also, let's face it, there's really never been much of a threat to Japanese politicians. You know, I mean, it's just never been much of a threat. The only thing I can re ever recall is I remember years and years ago being at the UN and just for some reason was down there and a Japanese and a Korean delegation were out having dinner. And they had diplomatic security, but they had no security of their own. In other words, you know, the U.S. gave them security when they showed up. So, so you know what happened? There was just a handoff. All right, get on the plane. Bye. When you land, the Americans will cover you. In other words, they're not that worried about this stuff. They don't have a right. huge threat. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, everything from tales of the emperor going around with a two-car caravan, you know, a two-car convoy just the emperor and like a Mitsubishi behind him with some bodyguards. <laughs> it's not, it's not a society that worries about these things. Right. Right. Well, it's unfortunate that that seems like it may, may be changing, shifting to other business now from that very big news, which I'm sure we'll come back to in future episodes, but Bloomberg reports that credit Swiss is cutting more than two dozen, what they call frontline jobs at the investment bank in Asia, uh, as it grapples with losses and weakening outlook in the global economy. They didn't in the story say specifically which offices, which practices would be hit. The move comes in addition though, to previous cuts in the firm's China practice. Uh, Mark, we talk a lot about recession in the USA. I think we're in one. We talk about one in Europe. I think that's inevitable if you look at energy prices and the general situation there. But should we be worried about North Asia? I mean, not just Japan, which has had a slowing economy recently and a, and a currency that's doing something very strange. But uh, should we be worried about Taiwan and the rest of uh, East Asia? Yes. Um, look, what's to me, and it's a big picture thing, what's driving everything is the demographics. I mean, this is this all of Northeast Asia is shrinking. You know, we've already hit the point in Japan, Korea and Taiwan, I'm almost certain, have all started either are either flat or declining. In other words, there's just no population growth. China, I've always believed that, that, that the worm turned, you know, a couple of years ago. I don't know how mm -hmm. bad it's turned, whether it's, yes, you know, we're losing 40,000 people a year or 200,000. I don't know. Um, but in but when that happens, you just don't have as many customers. You don't have as many anything. You know, everything starts, demand starts sliding. And I think, you know, you know this from your experience and, you know, is that, you know, once demand starts going a certain way, business generally chases it. In other, in other words, you know, once there's fewer customers, you know, business starts chasing it. There's a great study years ago and it talked about house painting. Uh, and it was somewhere, <laughs> I can't remember where it was in the U.S. And it was basically about how when the economy went bad, the first thing people really stopped doing was painting their houses. You know, in other words, okay, I can, it can wait a year, it can wait a year, it can wait a year. So essentially you saw this explosion in, you know, Kristen and Mark painting company and all these other painting companies, you know, going after it. But then you saw this massive price cut, you know what I'm saying? And then the layoffs, because at the end of the day, 
the Mark and Kristen Painting Company, if it has to be the Mark and Kristen Painting Company with Chase bringing us water, your son and my son James holding the ladder, that's what it'll be. So, you know, you're laying people off. My point about South, about North Asia is I, I think their export engines are still probably okay. I mean, I think the Japanese are going to keep exporting stuff. I think the Chinese will somewhat keep exporting things. Um, are, are, they'll, be, they'll be okay. It won't, it won't be a drastic drop. But their domestic markets are certainly suffering now, and they're aging. And so the thing is, is like, you know, you're going to have maybe different products, but you have needs for the service industry that are going to greatly outweigh the ability to service those things. And a, a classic example is, you know, home care people. You know, home care in Japan is turning into a real political issue because people can't get people to come in and take care of them. And so, you know, you don't have them that, you know, you go to uh, somebody told me if you go to some healthcare places now, uh, old age homes, you know, two thirds of the staff is foreigners now. Um, and I've, and I've, I've heard that. So the point being is they're bringing these people in, but not fast enough. Nobody really wants to relocate to China. That's for sure. Some people will go to Japan, right. but overall, I think it's quite bad. I got one thing on the CFSB and the investment banks. It's early, but I think we're starting to see the trend with, with China where the Chinese banks are going to be the preferred CCP option for the business. In other words, if you're Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, somebody else, you were leading these deals in the past, I think you're basically going to be a major part of the deals. There's no doubt about that. But you are no longer going to be the leaders. And that's a political directive. In other words, they want to build the abilities of Chinese domestic investment banks, and that's who's going to get the business. Um, as for wealth management and things like that, I try to keep an eye on that. I think that's going to continue to be okay. But again, you're going to have a situation where basically they're keeping a real close eye on what these rich people have. They're watching mm -hmm. the money flows. And the question is going to be, quite frankly, you know, are they going to be able to sustain the business and offer the things that they can? CFSB was famous for having Swiss accounts, Singaporean accounts, Isle of Jersey, you name it, Isle of Man, wherever. <laughs> Are they going to be able to offer those products? And if they can't offer those products, well, why do business with them? Just do business with Hangzhou Central or you know whatever whatever your other bank is. Yeah, it's you know I wonder. So China, uh, for a variety of reasons, slowing down, including their self-inflicted wounds from still having effectively a zero COVID strategy. Yeah. Um, Japan rising prices, rising taxes, not as much inflation as in the U.S. or Europe, but significant. They have a currency that's that's it's unbelievable. I mean, tempted to go out and stockpile yen right now because you can get 135 for a dollar. Um, and Taiwan, this leads nicely into our next story, um, but also. So a slowing economy. The question, though, is, you know, Southeast Asia, and I'm sort of a perpetual optimist, even though sometimes uh, excessively so, because performance doesn't meet expectations, that you have a, you know, growing populations, you have younger yes. populations, you have less, uh, you know, they'll still do the lip service on climate change and the need for this and that, but they're not going to shoot themselves in the foot on energy prices the way we are witnessing in Europe and unfortunately partly in the United States um, today. Uh, do you think this is a moment for Southeast Asia or, or what? Um, I, I think I actually think on the consumer side, it's been a moment for Southeast Asia for the last 10 years. Where, you know, look, Procter & Gamble and all these big guys, Unilever, they know their markets and they've seen a declining market in, in China. Of course, people's incomes have been expanded. So maybe they're buying Ben & Jerry's instead of the cheap ice cream. But, you know, <laughs> um, maybe not Ben & Jerry's or something else. But the real <laughs> issue is, is going to be, look, in the Philippines, you've still got... It's, you know, 2.5, 2.6 uh, 
population growth. Indonesia, the same way. These are large countries, you know what I'm saying? And they're continuing to grow. Malaysia's continuing to grow. Singapore is continuing to grow through immigration mostly. Um, Papua New Guinea, Australia is still growing, you know what I'm saying, through immigration and birth rates are down, down there are not that horrible. Um, Viet Thailand's continuing to grow, you know, not as rapidly, but it's continuing to grow a little bit. And Vietnam is still in the growth cycle, not, probably not for much longer, um, you know, because their birth rate's dropping pretty rapidly. But, you know, Southeast Asia, yeah, Burma, places like that, Myanmar, give it a, give it a, I mean, if you're, if you're looking for a play and somebody says North Asia or South Asia, consumer-wise, I'd look at Southeast Asia. Right. Um, I, I would also say that the other thing that has Southeast Asia does have going for it is I don't think they're going to be spending a lot of money on weapons. You know what I'm saying? So in other words, mm-hmm. the government well, that's interesting. The government's going to be spending more on infrastructure. Weapons cost a lot of money, as the Soviets learned, you know what I'm saying, as we're all yeah. about to learn, thanks to Ukraine, when people start having to restockpile things, you know what I'm saying? Yes, um, yes. That's, and, and well, so, that's a big U.S. export, so advantage yeah, yeah, us, we'll maybe. Be doing well, we'll be doing well. So, but, but, but Southeast <laughs> Asia... Not so much. Not so much. I mean, I, Japan, right. other places are going to be buying. Well, you know. here's the Taiwan story I mentioned. I mean, we've heard so much over the last two and a half years about how there's been a shortage of semiconductors. Um, that shortage plus U.S. export controls that began under the Trump administration directed at China were a big boon for Taiwan, which hosts advanced ship companies like TSMC. There finally are signs that this frenzy is over. I think this is something you and I have talked about, that within a year or two, this is just going to be boring hardware again. I mean, when, before the last two or three years, did you hear last about computer chips? It was probably like the 80s or 90s. And we've been talking about software and distribution and media since then. Um, But you've had a slump in personal computer sales, a route in cryptocurrency markets. It turns out, you know, people buying computers and wasting energy to run calculations to create crypto is a big market for these guys. Uh, Forgive the pun, Mark, but uh, has Taiwan put too many chips on this play? I don't think Taiwan's put too many chips on the play because I think they're really good at what they do. I think it just comes back to a normal, normal situation. That to me is what happens. You know what I'm saying? In other words, I think it's a normal situation now that they're in. And I think in that sense, we're going to see um, a lot of different, um, a lot of different, uh, a lot of different, how would I say this? I think we're going to see a lot of different implications for Taiwan. And But their factories are just, they're still going to run at 100%. They're still going to be turning out chips, but I'm not so sure they're going to have the massive pricing power. I'm not so sure there's going to be people standing in lines. There's still a chip shortage in the world, and they'll be filling that, but it doesn't seem to be so drastic now. Right. Well, just from a political angle, though, so they'll be making tons of money. Great for them. Good for them. But frankly, recently, their diplomats used TSMC and others as saying, well, look how important we are to uh, the U.S. supply chain, especially the U.S. tech supply chain. So it's one thing if Russia knocks off a third of Ukraine, but if China knocks off Taiwan, uh, are you able to make iPhones? Are you able to make PCs, um, servers, all of the things, satellites, the things we depend on? Uh, And that has, I think, increased attention. It's also increased some people say, well, all we'd have to do is bomb TSMC ourselves before the Chinese get us and we'd be fine. I think that's a facile argument. But, you know, I just wonder if 
Taiwan really got a little lazy in the success during the pandemic of TSMC. Uh, it sort of papered over the fact well, that they closed their yeah, economy it, to the outside it was, world. It was also everything, you know, I mean, <clears throat> I got a cigar buddy who makes, uh, he, in Taiwan, he makes, uh, uh, I can't remember the brand, it's a European brand. He makes their appliances, like small appliances, coffee makers and stuff like that. Well, China was pretty much shut down. So he was like, you know, his his factory of 75 or 100 people, you know, he was like turning out more toasters than you could shake a stick at. So all <laughs> of Taiwan was really booming. In other words, it was it was an odd situation where, you know, the service industry was just dying. There were these programs about going, well, you used to be a bellhop. Now, you know, you can go down to TMSC and work a job there. I think it comes down to the issue in Taiwan, and I, I don't like to, uh, I think the fact of the matter is where they've really been arrogant here is in their immigration policies. And the fact of the matter mm -hmm. is they've just missed the boat on this. And they do rely too much on TMSC. And I don't think they understand, you know, I don't think they understand the word. Let's face it, Taiwan is hardware, it's not software. Anybody yeah. who tries to get you to invest in a Taiwanese software upstart, that's like buying swampland in Florida. They don't do it. OK, um, but, you know, they, 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 they you know, it's it's still this amazing situation where, like, in 2021, I'd come through the uh, the, the the halls and like, you know, that the the, the the you know, the Taiwanese health workers would be all over you. But over to your right would be like 200 Vietnamese also getting the test coming in to work at the factories. Now, those guys still managed to come in. But I I, I have I have not doubts about Taiwan, but Taiwan to me, they miss the boat. They think that they think the semiconductors are everything and they, their other industries are just have been fully utilized. But, you know, I, I am not a uh, I am I am I am not a believer that it's going to fall apart there. But I do think, boy, I'll tell you, they had so many opportunities here to do this. And now look at them. They're actually doing a pretty good job. They're down to three day quarantine, which is really, you know, nothing. Um, you know, you come in there, spend a couple of days, recover from jet lag, and then you're on your way. But, you know, and I don't think it's going to change, by the way. I think politically, because of all the new strains coming in, they'll keep it like that. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to uh, to watch what goes on. Um, you know, you mentioned Myanmar previously. I, th I think you've actually been there. This country is also called Burma by some. Um, they hosted a big confab recently. Foreign ministers from China and five Mekong Delta countries discussed economic cooperation uh, in the Myanmar tourist destination of, is it Bagan? Bagan? I've never been there. Bagan, it's a beautiful place. Is it? Okay. I want to go, but I think there's yeah, sort of the remnants of a war going on or something. Anyway, first okay. multilateral ministerial meeting held in the country since last year's military takeover. And this is news because, you know, Myanmar has been shunned not only by the West for human rights violations in the military takeover, they even got a slap on the wrist from ASEAN, which, you know, is unusual for that, that body. Um, I don't know. Is it possible that Myanmar is back to just being an emerging market that has some political risk, or is this still really a no-go zone until the no, conflict it's an emerging is over? market? The problem is it, yeah. it's not an emerging market for the West because of all the human rights violations and all the problems. But the Chinese are throwing shitloads of money in there. Excuse me. Uh, the 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 ties <laughs> are all over the damn place. Um, the Hong Kong Chinese are building factories. The Taiwanese are down there. Everybody's there. I mean, it's a growing, it's a growing economy. And it's one of the things that actually is a bit, it's kind of like, I mean, in other words, 
Putin has oil, Myanmar has cheap labor, okay, and a growing consumer market. So it's going to, you know, the, the world does not depend on Walmart buying from Myanmar. You know what I'm saying? There's enough active action out there for them to supply a lot of different places. I mean, one of the things that shocked me when I was there was how much stuff they were shipping to Africa, cheap clothing they were shipping to Africa huh. and to the Eastern European countries, you know, with brands you've never heard of. And, you know, they just they just turn it out. Um, it, it is a country that it's hard to get a fathom of how it's growing. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that people are employed. They haven't done anything stupid like Sri Lanka. Um, but it's still a brutal regime. Um, they lock you up if they don't like you, no matter who you are. Um, I got the boot out of there, just so you know. 2014, last time there, out. You know what I'm saying? They found out I was with Jimmy and, you know, somebody dropped a dime. We know it was probably the Chinese because um, they thought we were trying to do media down there. Um, but, you know, it's one of these things that I, I've always I've always watched it. I've, I've always thought it was got as a good thing. And it does have still a pretty decent tourism market, you know, from the Europe, from from when it opens back up. The Europeans, Bagan is beautiful. It's a beautiful country. And can I tell you something about how you die and how you die in Burma? I'll call it Burma. How you die in Myanmar? Oh, Here's how you die in Myanmar. You're walking along a trail. OK, you slip in oil that's bubbled to the top. You hook your foot on teak wood, the vine of a teak wood thing. Your head comes crashing down and it hits jade or gold and you die that way. I mean, this country is just, <laughs> it, it is, it's almost cursed with, with, wow. with just natural wealth. The ocean, the, the, the waters are wide, the, the fields are full. You know what I'm saying? It is, it is there and, and the people, um, are basically uneducated. One of the things that drove me crazy down there was people going like, well, you know, everybody here speaks English. No, they don't. <laughs> you know, they stop <laughs> schooling people at like the sixth grade, the seventh grade, you know, and, 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 and it's in incredibly, incredibly oppressive against religions and things like that. But, mm -hmm. you know, it yeah. is, it is, it, is it growing? Yes, because they don't, there's a myth out there that like, if we haven't put our imperature on it, then it's not there. I think it will be there. I think it will grow. But, you know, we'll just have to we'll just have to we'll just have to see. Is um, uh so they moved the cap they sort of built it's like a Brasilia thing where they just built a capital out of nothing. Is it Napidia, something like that? Uh a not decade be, ago. Not so, be not be yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, but is the business capital still like, young gun. Oh yeah. Young gun is there where everybody wants to be. I mean that's where everybody is. No, they mm -hmm. built that capital up there, and I, I swear to God, this is true. I was told this multiple times. They built it up there because they were worried about an American invasion. I am not kidding <laughs> you. So they moved it up into the middle of the country. By the way, they moved it into as a as a, a friend of mine was with us down there, a military guy. He said, "Yeah, congratulations, you moved it into the one place that not a jungle, not waterways, not where it's fight." But in basically open fields where U.S. tanks would just have a great, you know, for seven months a year, it's dry and U.S. tanks, M1 tanks would like <laughs> go through that place like hot knife through butter. It's a really <laughs> weird place. I mean, it's 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 you've got like these wide roads. I still remember meeting some of the big government officials there in these giant ass buildings. I mean, just like, you know, it's almost like a giant hall that, you know, you could put 20,000 people and you'd have your meeting there. And there'd be like, when you walk into, there'd be a guy like sitting on a stool over in the corner. And his job was to watch this giant room 
with horrible murals on the side of the wall that meant <laughs> nothing. But it's 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 it, Myanmar is going to be a growing country. And, um, you know, I mean, I do we engage them? I tend to be a believer that, you know, basically rivals like Russia and China, you smack around. But these smaller dictatorships, you basically co-opt them and a little bit of threat. You know what I'm saying? In other words, it's like how you deal with the Philippines. In other words, they're yes. naturally with us, co-opt them. But if Marcos gets too far out of line, let him know that, hey, you know, an opposition movement can spark up any time. You know, right. in, in and, Myanmar, you know Taiwan, Myanmar, Taiwan and South Korea were military uh, dictatorships effectively for most of the Cold War. And, you know, some would yeah. say that our interaction with them actually helped with those transitions. Oh, there's no there's there, there's there's no doubt. There's no doubt. I mean, it's the big mistake everybody made with China. And I, I probably was part of it. I wasn't smart enough you know, to know the whole story. But the, the thing with China was everybody goes, OK, all these guys are changing. Taiwan, Korea, everybody's coming around. You know, everybody's coming to democracy. Oh, China should be next. No, we got that one wrong. <laughs> um, right. They got that one wrong pretty bad. But the, but the thing is, is with Myanmar, um, I just don't know how you invest in Myanmar. It's very, very difficult. Um, it's 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 really uh, it's it's really a difficult country, probably best through Singapore or Thailand or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Which, by the way, the Thais and the Singaporeans, not the Chinese, run that country, just so everybody knows. Interesting. In and of, didn't Japan always have sort of a longstanding Japan has had one. I mean, Kieran Brewery just sold their brewery. I don't know what that means down there, hmm. but they sold it for 280 million bucks or something like that. 161 million. I can't remember the number, but the fact of the matter is it is an, it is an incredibly, uh, look, it's a growing country and it's got cheap labor. Everybody's going there. I mean, and they're good workers too. That's the other thing too. Not everybody's always good workers. Just so you know, I mean, it's, you don't always oh, yes. get the best workers in the world in certain places. The, the, in, in, in Yangon, in, 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 in Myanmar, young people want to do things. Yeah, well, so it sounds like it's promising, maybe not the capital. You know, I've never been to that capital. I've been to Brasilia, and I thought, sort of like when you ride a monorail, it's like, wow, this is what the future looked like in 1960, right? Yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> no, it's nothing like that. There's no monorail going up there. <laughs> no. All right, well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Simon White. We'll be back again with another episode. If you like what you saw, please subscribe to our channel. We'll be back again soon. Thank you.